the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today's epistle comes from a section of Galatians, where St. Paul, the author of Galatians, discusses what it means to be justified or counted righteous by God, or how one attains that status. In New Testament times, the scribes and Pharisees who we are hear about the gospel so frequently, as well as the lawyer in today's gospel, would have said that one is counted righteous by virtue of one's zeal for the moral law of God, the Torah. If, if one was zealous to do the things that God said to do, one would be counted righteous in the great judgment, which was the sense of it. St. Paul was an ex-Pharisee whose conversion experience on the road to Damascus and his subsequent training in the faith had taught him that the Pharisees were wrong about what it takes to be justified. And he developed his understanding and his rebuttal to the Pharisees' position from the book of Genesis based on chronology. God had made his promises to Abraham and his descendants or, as St. Paul says, to his seed, which he meant singularly to Christ, as is highlighted in the epistle. But the promise to Abraham contained two things. He gave him a promise of land in Genesis 12, and he gave him a promise of many descendants, that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the sea, uh, a promise he gave in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham received these promises that he got from God by faith. That is, he believed that God was able to do what he had promised. He believed this even though he received the promise of land when he lived in a foreign country, uh, maybe a couple thousand miles away from that land, and he received the promise of descendants when he was married to a woman who was not able to have children. <clears throat> Genesis 15.6 is the verse upon which St. Paul rests his argument for justification. Genesis 15, 6 says, quote, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. The promises that God made to Abraham took place somewhere around 2000 BC, give or take one or 200 years. Abraham lived as far before Christ as we live after Christ. That's the good rule of thumb for understanding Abraham. The Torah, which contains the Ten Commandments and the other instructions that God gave to Israel, God gave those to Israel, given the Moses on Mount Sinai, at least more than 400 years after Abraham. Uh, a traditional dating for the for the Exodus, the commandments would have been somewhere around 1400 BC. The exact date depends upon various nuances that you don't want to get into. St. Paul's point is this. If, Saint, if God declared Abraham to be righteous by faith somewhere around 2000 BC, and the law didn't even come along till four or 500 years later, how can the standing of righteousness that God gives be dependent upon the law, since the father of the nation was counted righteous when there was no law. What then is the purpose of the moral law 
It sounds strange to say it, but the purpose of the moral law is to highlight human sin. That is to say, as God reveals his perfect will for human behavior through his Torah, through his instructions on how human life should be lived, it makes it abundantly clear that humans don't live this way. In fact, the Ten Commandments were given to a nation. Those rules were given precisely because people weren't living like that. We can do a personal experiment on the purpose of the moral law to understand its meaning. Everyone in the New Testament, both Jesus and his adversaries, agreed that the moral law was summed up in two great commandments. The commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 6, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the commandment from Leviticus chapter 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. Thus, all you need to do if you want to be justified by following the law is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbors yourself always, everywhere, in every circumstance of your life. And if you can do that, then you'll be justified by your zeal and obedience to the law. The dilemma that this highlights is brought out in the gospel. The lawyer, who really didn't want an answer, he was just trying to trick Jesus with the question, but nonetheless, it's a legitimate question, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him what the Torah said, and the lawyer said, well, the Torah says to love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, that's the right answer, do that, and you'll live, you'll inherit eternal life. You'll be, you'll be proclaimed righteous in the great judgment. But the lawyer knew there was a problem within himself. He did not always love his neighbor as himself. Thus, to bring obedience to the commandment within reach, he needed to pare down the definition of neighbor. So he asked, who is my neighbor? And for the record, the lawyer, along with the scribes and, and Pharisees, had already pared the definition of neighbor down uh, from, you know, from everybody to sort of observant Jews. They would have excluded the non-observant Jews, the Samaritans, and certainly the Gentiles from the definition of neighbor. They did not qualify. The striking feature of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus did not answer the question. To the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus responded with a story. And another question, who was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And we should note that the central teaching of the parable is to love your enemy, which is something Jesus highlights in the Sermon on the Mount, because the Samaritan would have, the, the injured man would have seen the Samaritan as an enemy, and the, and the Samaritan knew that the injured Jewish man did not care for him. The, no, the lawyer, no doubt grudgingly, had to acknowledge that the despised Samaritan in the story, who had loved his enemy, had fulfilled the commandment in a way that was much superior to that of the religious people in the story. Now, 
To say that the moral law reveals our sin is not to say that the moral law is not also the standard for our behavior. It just means that our behavior cannot justify us all by itself. For we are justified or, or made right with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And our behavior is an evidence of that reconciling faith. Faith and baptism confer a status and a vocation. We are now children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He has accepted us into his family. God has accepted us. We call him Father, and he sees us as children. We are now justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And now we are free from condemnation and therefore also free to love. There are two essential errors about justification. The first error says, I am saved because I am a good person. This is an error because it ignores the verdict of the moral law. We cannot, by our own natural unaided efforts, rise to the level of holiness, of perfect obedience to the law from the heart. We can do good on a human level, but there's always in our fallen condition some defective motive, some selfishness that creeps in. So it doesn't mean no one can be good, any good at all. It just means we cannot achieve divine perfection simply by our efforts. The other error says, I am saved by faith, so it doesn't matter how I behave. This is an error precisely because God has saved us in order to change us into people who really love the way he loves. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enables us to grow more and more in our ability to love. To say that we do not love perfectly does not excuse us from our vocation to love. The right understanding is that we are justified by faith and we are learning how to love. The church, the body of Christ, is the school of love. This is the community in which we are learning how to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and learning how to love our neighbor as ourself, especially those neighbors we may not like so much. We always come to the altar aware of this paradox. We begin the liturgy with the summary of the law. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ said. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And we should be aware, as we say that, as that moral law comes to us in the light of God's presence, it reveals our fallenness. And so in the liturgy, the very next thing we say is, Lord, have mercy upon us. But that is not the end. We find the remedy for the sin that is revealed through the law in the word and the sacrament that follow. We confess our sins. We receive Christ, who makes us clean from sin. And then we go out into the world to try to love again. This is the essential pattern of the Christian life. 
to come to our prayer asking for mercy, to receive grace and forgiveness and strength to love in a new way, to increasingly share with others the love that God has shared with us. The gospel ends with Jesus saying to the lawyer, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer had to say, he who showed mercy. What Jesus said to him, he says to each of us, go and do thou likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.